Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do come before you, Lord, um, today with uh, gratitude, with worship. Um, You sit on your throne. You're in control. There is nothing that slips past you. Um, You are holy. You are just. You are sovereign over all nations and peoples. And Lord, we thank you that uh, in Christ, We have received mercy and uh, justice um, has been upheld as the wrath that was due us was poured out on Jesus. Lord, help us never to lose sight of this truth. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us um, as we look at this this text that's before us and as we sort of look at a a large section of the book of Revelation that you would... Uh, Lord, just help our understanding and and help us uh, to see the flow of thought um, of what has occurred and what has been revealed uh, in this book. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I have been very open about my struggle of how to handle the book of Revelation. I've, I've been dealing with this crisis for two years kind of in planning of how am I going to sort of nibble into it. And, and, and so here we are, and I'm still not really at peace with the options before me, but I've come to a dead end, and, a, and a, a, an executive decision um, has, has to be made. Um, so we concluded Chapter 5 last week. Um, as, as we get into chapters 6 through 18, these chapters are very difficult. Um, trying to figure out how to navigate them, there's, there's really t- two options that I see. There's slowing down and taking like a year to get through it. Um, my concern with that, though, is we lose the big picture of Revelation and, and we get lost in the weeds, and we go down a bunch of rabbit trails, and we, we just can't make sense of what's up or down. Um, when we started this, my, my plan was like, oh, I want to do a, a survey of Revelation, so we kind of fly over to see sweeping thoughts. Um, we've done the beginning part slow. As we edged up on chapter 4, we took a break and we covered Daniel to kind of give us layers of understanding of sort of um, the, the timeline uh, that, that God has laid out. If we could go to the next slide, I, I want to show this really simple. It's just a scan from a book. Um, it's Ryrie's simple book of, of Revelation. And I think it does a good job of explaining the scenes of Revelation um, these are chapters. The numbers are chapters. This thread is the scene from heaven. Down below is the scene of earth. So Revelation chapter 1, you start with this, this huge scene of Christ, this, this overwhelming image of Christ that John saw. From there, John is given a message uh, with Revelation 119 as it's sort of laid out. The things that you've seen, the things that are, that are Chapters 2 and 3, this is where we presently live, is in the church age. Then chapter 4, we zap up to heaven, and we see this scene in heaven, and it says these are the things 
that will unfold um, by the outline that's given in Revelation 1.19. And so chapters 6 through 19, well, 6 through the end are things that are still yet future to us. Um, As we looked at Daniel, we slowed down at at Daniel chapter 9. I I know some of you, your minds were a little bit spinning over what happened as we had our calculators out looking at the 70 weeks of Daniel. Um, Daniel chapter 69 ended here. Daniel chapter 70 is going to pick up here. And this is Daniel chapter 70. It's a seven-year window. Um, There's a number of theological views, guys I respect, even though I disagree with them in our understanding. Um, I hold a position that is pre-trib, pre-millennial, which means that I believe um, that Christ will rapture his church, take the church out of here. From Revelation, you see the church a number of times. You don't see the word church again in Revelation until the very, very end. And so it's believed that chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation describe the, the, the period known as the tribulation. Uh, split in half at the three and a half year, year mark, it goes to Daniel 9.27, which is the time of great tribulation. It's, it's, it's horrific. All sides agree that it's horrific. All sides agree that it's the 70th week of Daniel that's being described. Um, the point of conflict Conflict's probably a strong word. I would say that the, the, the varying opinions are in when did it happen? Um, the preterists would say that this all was fulfilled in AD 70 when, when Israel or Jerusalem was destroyed. Um, I have a hard time with that position. A lot of scholars like, uh, would have a hard time with that because there are many things that, that didn't happen uh, during that period. Um, there are the camp that I'm in that would say, no, what's being described here is literal, and these things will be fulfilled as they, are, 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 you know, as they say they'll be fulfilled. Um, then there's another camp that says, well, it's all just allegorical, that these are just images to kind of paint the picture of uh, darkness and judgment, and, and so I have a hard time with that one. Um, and so how, how to, you know, every year I have 52 hours with you all. I have 52 hours to teach, and I take vacation for a couple weeks, and I miss a couple weeks, so by the end of it, we have about 42 hours together um, each Sunday. And so how, how to handle this? Um, and, and I'm going to let down a few. Others are going to thank me. But I think the best way is to sort of to, to give you a broad stroke over what happens in these chapters. And to sort of do that within your bulletin, um, you'll, you'll see this got questions insert. And the question is, is what are the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bulls in the book of Revelation? Um, this is going to give you a little half a page summary of the things that unfold between chapter 6 to basically the end of chapter 18. On the back of it, you'll see um, sort of a, a graph. And so as, we go, as you go through chapter 6 of Revelation to 18, there are three judgments. There's the seven seals, the seven trumpets, 
and then the seven bulls. The seventh judgment of each one serves as an introduction to the next one. So it's kind of like one of those little, you know, what do they call those little Russian dolls where you pop one out and there's seven things. And then in the seventh one, there's seven, there'd be seven more that kind of begin to explain the next one. And, and so uh, the back shows the chart. So if you were to look at the, the, the first column, we see the seven seals. And so then we see which each one of these judgments are uh, for the seven of them. And then you move to the next one, the trumpets. And then there's seven trumpets. And then when you get to the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet serves to introduce the seven bulls, which are judgment that God is going to uh, dispel on the earth. And, and so I, I do apologize for those of you that really want to dig down and go verse by verse. It, that is how I do things. I mean, I preach line by line. But I'm also torn with the how as a body do we navigate this to, to, to keep the, the bigger picture? And so I'm forcing myself um, to, to explain it. If you want more details, email me. I'd be happy to send you links to commentaries for you to go deeper. Um, there, there's a lot of speculation over things and how they're, they're going to happen. Um, the, the reason that I want to pick up in chapter 19 is because in chapter 19... It's the sort of the end of all of the, the horrific judgments that have unfolded upon the earth. And then we find ourselves back up in heaven, sort of connecting from the scene where we left off last week, and we get a bit of the so what? What do we make of everything that just unfolded, which is still future to us now, this, this horror of, of things that will happen according to Daniel 9.27, the things that we see in Revelation 6 through 18 that are mind-blowingly bad. What do we do with that? And so to me, I think it does us most justice initially as a survey of going through Revelation to understand what just happened. What do we make of this? What do we do with this? What do we do with these things that are, that are, that are terrible? I'll never forget when, Dave, when I told Dave, I was like, hey, I'm going to do Revelation. And so Dave started out that week and he said, I'm going to start reading it. And he, he contacted me and he's like, bro, bro, there's like a lady and locust and like, what are you thinking? <laughs> He's like, I'm praying for you, man, however you handle it. And, and uh, I encourage you to read it, like read through it. And then you might thank me for giving the overview because I, I don't see how we can get through it in a weekly sort of 45-minute chunk and to keep, the, to keep the big picture of what's going on. And so if we were to go back to Daniel... We see that the theme of Daniel was that there is a God. He's sovereign. He's, he has a plan over the nations. Things might not look like they're going the way we want them to go, but yet God is in control. And there's a prophecy of the 70 weeks that unfolds to the almost, I mean, you can make a case to the very day that Jesus rolls into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as the lamb on lamb selection day to go and to make the perfect sacrifice as Daniel predicted. And then there's the 70th week that there's this gap that even in Daniel's time, it just seems that there's a gap. And so here we are between these two periods. From our perspective, what I believe is that the next thing that we're waiting for is that Christ is going to call his church into the sky according to Revelation chapter 4, or not Revelation, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. And the church will be raptured into the sky to meet Christ. 
And I believe that that will be the kickoff of the 70th week, the things that we see in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Um, While I'm giving the overview, I don't want to minimize the importance of these chapters. I do believe that these, these chapters are important. I believe um, that God gave them for a purpose. I feel like suddenly during that era, when the church is taken from the earth and these cataclysmic things begin to happen, I think that these suddenly the things that are in this section I don't want to say they're going to become more relevant because that's a, that's a bad understanding, but, but they're going to be critical to understand what in the world is going on during that time because it's, it's horrific. Um, and so I guess I've, I've learned, like I went through Ecclesiastes when I first got here, and it was a fun year for me, but there was a lot of people like, man, Ecclesiastes, it was just depressing. I think at the end there were people on you know, medication, and like, it was like, I don't say that lighthearted. Like, it was just... So I'm like, okay, like the tension that I have about how do we go through it so that we have clarity? And, and that's my aim is that we have clarity. So these, these 21 judgments have now unfolded. And we get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. And we read, after these things. I believe this phrase happens, it's like eight or nine times throughout Revelation we saw it in the beginning of chapter 4. We see it in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, in the, the sort of the bookend of that verse. It says, um, after these things, this will occur. And so now we've, we've, we've reached sort of a tipping point in these judgments. Uh, after these things, uh, they're now at the precipice of Christ's return. Not the rapture of the church, but his second advent, he's, he's about to appear by the end of chapter 19 and end of verse t- chapter 20. We will see that the risen Lord Jesus will come back literally to reign and to rule on earth for a thousand years. And so we're at this, this juncture in human history and, and John's seeing this from this vision. And we read, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And when the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And the voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like a voice of the great multitude and like the sound of many waters, the sound of the mighty, mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, 
write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell to his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this, this image unfolds. So John, we start out, the island of Patmos, he's, he's there. He's an old man. He's, he's doing hard time of making big rocks into small rocks. Quarrying marble is what they believe. He's already been executed for his faith, but they failed. They boiled him in a vat of water or oil. They don't know. He survived it due to the superstition. They said, well, we can't try to kill this guy because he survived. The gods are on his side. And so they send him out to do hard labor. He's there as a very old man in his 80s or 90s, chipping away. While he's there, we're told on the Lord's Day, so he's worshiping Christ as this elderly man who he started out as a young whippersnapper amongst the apostles. He suddenly has this image of the Jesus whom he loved, who he walked with, who he cared for, who on the cross said, John, this is your mother and mom. This is your son care for her all the days of her life. And so now he sees Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, and he says, I have some things for you to write down. Write what you've just seen. Here's seven more letters to the churches. Then he's caught up into heaven where he says, come up here, I need to show you some things that have to take place after this, after the church age. And we have our scene in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 of this awesome picture of worshiping the Father. Then they see the, 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 the scrolls. Who's worthy to open these seals? Who, who can do this? And then in rolls Jesus. And he is worthy to d- dish out all of these judgments that are about to unfold. And the scene ends in Revelation chapter 5 of this worship, which we looked at last week. From there, Jesus begins opening the judgments. And the judgments unfold over the period of the seven years. At the end of all of the judgment, those 21 judgments that are listed, we're taken back up to heaven and we see this scene, this great multitude in heaven saying, praising God, hallelujah. This word hallelujah is fascinating. I'm sure we're all familiar with the word hallelujah. It's so common to us, but if I was to tell you that it's only used four times in the entire New Testament, I think that might surprise some. It's only used four times, and all of them occur within these six verses of Revelation. It's an Old Testament word. It's used in the Psalms. Um, every now and again, I like to go to my old friend, Jay Verdamiki. He calls us friends, so we can call him friend. And I, uh, he's just a sweet man. I love listening to him, but I went to his commentary to say, hey, like, what, what did he have to say about this? And on this word, amen, this is what he says. In the worship scenes of chapters 5 through 7, we saw the elders, the the church, and the uncounted number of angels and created intelligences, all worshiping God. Now a great multitude, now a great number of the tribulation saints has been added to the chorus, and they are going to sing. This is something quite marvelous. This is the first time they've been able to utter the great note of praise of the Old Testament. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This word occurs four times in the first six verses. This is its only occurrence in the New Testament. It is reserved for final, the final victory. It is, an interesting, it is interesting to note that hallelujah occurs frequently in the book of Psalms. It means praise the Lord. 
In fact, in Psalm 150, a mighty crescendo of praise, hallelujah is a fitting note of praise at this juncture at the book of Reve- in the book of Revelation. The great tribulation is over. Jesus is coming. The church is to be united with Christ in marriage. Hallelujah. Let's sing it, my friend. Psalm 104.35 puts it in this way. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. That is hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because God is coming to judge and the wicked are going to be removed from the earth. Hallelujah is an explicative of praise as the final phase of salvation is coming to pass. So the wrath has been poured out. It's overwhelming. Those that will enter into the millennial period will all be believers because we see God's judgment is so thorough that anybody who rejects them will be done away with. They'll be, they'll be punished. And so now this transitional scene going to heaven, the multitudes singing out, hallelujah, God is to be praised. The first thing we see, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation is totally God's. Can't do anything to earn it. Verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous. So I think that they're sitting there with their winds sort of taken out of their sails, sort of in awe, like, what did we just witness? What do we do with this? And it seems like the, in the very beginning, what they say is they focus on God's character. And they say, God is holy. He's righteous. He is pure. And so when God judges, it's right. It's true. We can't push back against it. We can't get mad at God for it. What just happened was fairness. He says, he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. We started up with Daniel with, the, with Babylonia, Babylon, Babylon taking Israel into captivity, this horrific empire. Uh, then throughout biblical history, uh, Babylon would be referred to as the, the world system. And at the very end of Revelation, chapters 17 and 18, we see that Babylon is being dealt with, that God's judgment finally is dished out on Babylon. And so here they talk about this judgment, what just happened to her, God is so righteous, and this is good. A second time, verse 3, they said, hallelujah, again, her smoke rises up forever and ever. They believe that this is an allusion to Psalm 104, verse 35, and it speaks of the mountain being consumed with fire, and it speaks of the, uh, the thoroughness of God's judgment fully consuming, that nothing is missed, nothing escapes. Being from Valley Center in California, we know fires. We don't know fires like the Bible talks about. Like We have a small sliver of how horrific fire can be, but the consuming fire of God is far greater than anything that we can see. And they said a second time, hallelujah, praise God. Her smoke rises up forever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, these are the creatures we saw back in Revelation chapter 4. And I think we touched on them last week when Garrett covered it. But this, this image of, of the throne of God and the 24 elders of those that have been redeemed by God and these four creatures that are beyond words to explain. Here they are again. And they're saying... Amen. Hallelujah. 
And a voice came from the throne. This, this voice is unidentified. We, we, we think that it's an angel, but we don't know. It's not described. From this voice, out of the throne, out of these 24 elders that are worshiping, out of the four beasts that are worshiping, from that a voice. It's almost like a call and response. And so the call that is given is give praise to our God, all you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. So bondservants, those are individuals who have chosen to surrender their lives to God, to, 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 to become his servant. This is how the apostles described their lives. And so it says, give praise to our God, all you bondservants, you who fear him. The small and the great in verse 6, it's the response of the most. It's like overwhelming to John to hear this. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. And they had the sound of many waters, like the sound of many mighty peals of thunder saying, he said, there was the call to praise God. Then all of a sudden, the response, it was from the multitude, it was so loud, it was like thunder or yeah, lightning makes it. We don't get it that often, you know, but uh, it, where you see the lightning and then the thunder and it's just overwhelming and loud. And, and so what does is, what is he hear? Midway through verse six, hallelujah for the fourth time. Praise God. For the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the words of God. This scene can be over. I, I just, poor John. I don't want to say poor John. But by how he reacts, it's like he's so consumed with the things that he's trying to process with this vision that he's seen. This is the John who he and James were referred to as the sons of thunder with Jesus. That they were the young whippersnappers that had all of this energy and fire and zeal. Hey, Lord, do you want us to call down heaven and fry them from the face of the earth? And Jesus says, oh, you sons of thunder, you silly guys. That by the end of his life, that he would be the one that lives the longest. He would be the only one that would live a, a, to a natural death. I mean, they tried to kill him, but, but he lives the longest. He was the one that as he writes his gospel that he no longer refers to himself as John. He simply refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, that he was so humbled. And for him to see this picture, we'd heard about the writings. We, 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 he's read Paul's writing to Ephesus about this, this future marriage of the bride of Christ with, with the bridegroom who is Christ, who at the Lord's Supper, he says, I've got to go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And John lived under persecution. He sees this image. He sees all of this, this justice of God being unfulfilled on the earth. And then here, as he sees this chorus of praising God, 
discussion of, hey, the banquet's about to begin. And it's like all he can do is just to respond in worship, but he does it in like the super wrong way. I mean, it's, I mean, it's almost hilarious. Because it's almost like this angelic being who's talking to him. He's so consumed. He's like, I have no idea what's going on here. Like, this is either deity or close to it. And the only thing I know how to do is to fall down on my face and begin to worship. It's almost like when I, it was Paul. On Thursday night we studied this. And I'm blanking on the name. But they go to the, the Lystra. And they fall down and worship. Like, no, no, get up. I'm just a guy. Don't worship me. Worship is reserved exclusively for God. So verse 10, that I fell on my face, feet to worship, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. So most say this guy's an angel, this whole verbiage that he's John's brother, it makes me wonder, like I don't know. Clearly he's not God, clearly if he's an angel, he's not to be worshipped. We don't worship angels. You don't worship anything other than God. Amen. And he says, stop it. Get up. I'm just someone like you. He says, who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony is the spirit of prophecy. So this is a beautiful picture. As we go into next week, we see Jesus is going to enter the scene in all of his glory, all his might. If we were to go back to chapter 6, which we didn't cover today, we see the entrance of these horses. And Jesus is going to come on his horse. When he came to earth on Palm Sunday, he came on a donkey, an animal of peace. Horses in the Bible are animals of war. And so he's going to come on this great white horse with a sword in his mouth, and it's, there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> I, mean, not to, I mean, it's justice and the way things are going to be done, it's not, it's different. And so when I, I've been wrestling with chapters 6 through 18 for like a year now. How am I going to teach this so that we get it? And so we didn't cover them line by line and I apologize to those of you who like really want to dig in. You're welcome to those of you that are thankful for the big picture. But what do we do with them? Like, what, how do we handle this? And I think that today's text is the culmination of all that's unfolded in those chapters, all of those judges, all of those things that are super difficult to understand, all of those things that occur that there's varying opinions. Everybody agrees that it's God's wrath and that his judgment is being executed in full. So on that, everybody can agree. The other stuff, we'll wait to see. We can pray, we can dialogue, we can swing our swords in edification to like, to dive into the text. But at the end of the day, God is holy. He is just. And there's going to be a reckoning of, of the, the sinful account of man and humanity. And so what do I learn from these judgments? I First thing that I come to the conclusion of is that I believe deep within us, or at least within myself, I'm a guy that values justice. Like there's so much evil and wrongdoing and wickedness in this world and, and I can't stand it. 
And I'm a guy that wants judgment, especially on other people. For myself, I'm very gracious. <laughs> you know, like, like to me, I'm all about mercy, forgiveness, give me a second chance. Like I, but when it comes to others, you know. And so when I, when I see this image, we're faced with God's holiness, that he's without sin, he's without imperfection, he is perfect. We see his righteousness, that his deeds, his actions, his thoughts, everything about him is right. We see his perfection. Uh, we see his sovereignty over all. And as we look at this huge section, and if you want to study it deeper, if you lose sight of what's happening, you miss the whole picture. The, the image is there's a big holy God that blows our minds away, that's bigger than we can fathom, bigger than we can comprehend, bigger than anything. Like We can't understand him and his majesty. And we look about this earth and we see sin, we see sickness, we see cancer, we see things that are destroying this world, and we think it's just not right. And, and on one side, we have the propensity to shake our fist at God and say, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. And thankfully, God is really loving and kind and merciful and slow about his wrath, and he says, you don't want fairness with me. What you want is my mercy. You're thinking temporally. You're thinking in this life. You're not thinking about the scope of eternity. And so when I look at Revelation chapter 6 through 18, there's a peace within my soul that I don't have to be the world's cop. I don't have to right every wrong. I don't have to bring justice to every little, little thing that's gone wrong. I can rest and to know that my God is sovereign. He's on his throne and one day, every wrong, every sin, every horrific thing that's happened will give an accounting. I think the second thing that I see in this, if we're going to be honest with this wrath, is we all should be a little bit terrified <laughs> because we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we're honest with ourselves, we each are wretched little sinners, <laughs> you know, or big ones. You be the judge of yourself. And so I think that when we see this image of God's holiness, it should terrify us. When you come face to face with this sort of majesty, it should terrify. Every encounter of deity in the Bible, it results in humans falling on their face in fear and Jesus coming and saying, Shalom, peace be with you. It's okay, do not here. And so I think that the reaction that we see of this multitude that is here and is present for the end of the judgments, it's interesting that an Old Testament word, the, the church isn't mentioned during the judgments at all. I hold to the position that the church will be taken. But suddenly this order of the Old Testament era is there and that this old, at the end of it, this Old Testament word in the, in, in the New Testament, hallelujah, is used. God be praised, God be praised, God be praised. A, a, a curse. Um, I think that the lesson for us, and I think that the example that we see following the judgments by those that are there, is I, I talked to Garrett and I heard he mentioned it. And Garrett and I have a different opinion. Um, I mentioned to him, that as I keep thinking about the judgments, I keep thinking about that woman caught in adultery. That woman was totally set up by the Pharisees. Uh, for those of you that, like, where there's a woman, there had to have been a man. You don't set up this perfect trap without some coordination between a man to get this woman. 
And then suddenly the man's nowhere to be seen. And yet the woman is drugged there before Jesus to trap Jesus. So Garrett must be a sweeter guy than I am because he said that he believes that Jesus was saying, like, I love you, I care about you. What I have in my mind is that Jesus was writing all of their sin on the dirt. Because <laughs> he says, hey, he, he who without sin, let him cast the first stone. And maybe for these Pharisees who themselves were in the midst of adultery were writing women's names on the ground. All I know is that these Pharisees that were quick to stone this girl suddenly set down their stones. See you guys next week. <laughs> See you at Starbucks. And then at the end of the day, there was Jesus with this woman caught in adultery. And at the end of the day, there was one man who could have stoned this girl rightly. And it was Jesus. Jesus could have stoned her. In the early church age, they wanted to remove John chapter 8 from the New Testament. There was periods where the church did remove it from the, from, from the canon because they were saying that Jesus, or they took it, People begin to use this to say that Jesus was okay with sexual immorality. And so they took this out of the Bible, and then it was fought to be put back in the Bible. But the thing that is missed with this, Jesus forgave the woman. He said, go and sin no more. But her sin was accounted for because Jesus was on his way to the cross. And so Jesus paid for this woman's sin. And so here the, the, our God, who brings about all this judgment... He's the one who also had the wrath of God placed on him on the cross. And so anyone who's going through this judgment are individuals who have rejected this gift. The other story that comes to my mind is the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. And so the story goes, Jesus telling the story about these two individuals. And he says, there's a, there's a tax collector he stands in the middle of the temple and he sh he's praying to ever for everybody to hear. And he's saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. I tithe every week. I do this. I do that. I do. Thank God I'm not like a tax collector. And then Jesus says, now let's go over to the tax collector who can't even go. Like, he doesn't have the courage to go to the temple. He stays off at a distance. He can't even raise his eyes to heaven. And he's beating his chest saying, Lord, have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. This is Gunner's translation. And Jesus says, you know, which one of these two do you think is going to stand in the kingdom of God? And his, his picture is to this, this guy with humility. And so when I look at this scene following, God is on center stage. God is holy. He is just. If you've responded to his gift of salvation, our lives should be marked with gratitude. Grateful, like great, gratefulness is the same thing as gratitude, but like, I think we need to hear that. That we should be marked by worship, bringing him glory. And there is a certain peace that, that goes beyond words when you recognize and live according to the reality that God is actually sovereign and he's actually on his throne and he's actually taking care of business whether or not we understand what's actually happening in the midst of our lives. And so with that, let's pray. Um, Father, we do thank you, Lord, for how awesome you are. Lord, we, um, we come before you, I come before you, and I confess that so often my image of you is small. 
And we treat you more like a, uh, a lucky rabbit's foot that we go to when we want something or a, a butler where we need something and we, we tap our little button and we say, God, do this for me. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to reorientate our lives so that we can see you in part um, f- for your glory, your majesty, your holiness, your righteousness. Lord, you're above all things, you're in all things, you created all things. Colossians tells us that you, Christ, spoke creation into existence. And so, Father, we, th- we thank you that you would consider man um, in such a way that you would send your son to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. This is ultimately the most unjust thing that has ever happened, that the creator of the universe would humble himself and become a man and that he would die shamefully on the cross rejected by his people, rejected by humanity. And through that, Lord, it was all a part of your plan. What God meant for evil, what man meant for evil, you meant for good. And through him, we have eternal life. And so, Father, I pray for those of us who have received this gift that you would renew in us an awe for you, God, that we would live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you, that we would reorder our lives to prepare for that day when we stand before you. We ask that you would help us to be a people that encourage others to walk faithfully with you. We ask that you would give us the courage to share the good news of the gospel, which seems like foolishness to the world around us. And Father, for the people here that maybe don't know you, those that could be listening to this message that don't know you. Father, I pray that you would help them to understand the gospel, that Jesus offered his life for them, and that in him they could have eternal life. It's a gift. It's simple. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would help us in our worship of you with our lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen.